I'm Emily Williams, and this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. It was one year ago today that supporters of former President Donald Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 2021. The events of that day led to an impeachment, sparked debate about what it meant for the future of democracy in the United States, and launched investigations by the FBI and Congress. Today, we're taking a closer look at South Carolina's role in the lead-up to January 6th on that day and in the fallout that came after. Eleven South Carolina residents have been charged with storming the Capitol on January 6th, including two accused of assaulting the police officers who guarded it. Avery Wilkes has been covering their cases, and you'll hear from him today. We also spoke with political reporter Nick Reynolds about the response from South Carolina politicians to that day and the political fallout that we've seen for a few of them. My name is Nick Reynolds. I'm a state house reporter at the Post and Courier. I'm Avery Wilkes, and I'm a projects reporter at the Post and Courier. I've been covering the criminal cases of South Carolina's 11 January 6th defendants basically for the past year of listening on dozens of hearings, read through 1,500 pages of court documents and listened to hours of testimony from investigators and sort of always been fascinated about what led these people to Washington that day and why these people who almost universally considered themselves to be patriots, you know, what made them believe that it was the right thing to do to attack the seat of U.S. democracy. I've just been fascinated by that question for a while. And so when we were looking to do a story, a retrospective about January 6th, it sort of made sense to go back through everything we've learned in the past 12 months about how this could have happened. And also look at, we're a South Carolina newspaper, you know, we're not the Washington Post or the New York Times, but how can we tell the story? And what what can we contribute to uh, our nation's understanding of what happened that day? And we kind of decided to just tell the story through the lens of South Carolina, look at South Carolina's defendants, uh, the political operatives who helped organize the, the rally that turned into a riot, you know, how South Carolina politicians sort of fanned the flames of unrest that, that built this riot into what it was, and also sort of the political and legal fallout that has happened since then. So we, we sort of want to look at this this really national story through a South Carolina lens. Let's start by going back to before January 6th, to the first couple of months after the 2020 election when Trump and his supporters claimed election fraud. What was South Carolina's delegation saying at the time? At the time, it was actually generally acceptable to go along with the party line that there were irregularities in the nation's elections. And I also want to point out that uh, one thing that really surprised me in my research that didn't make it into the story is that mistrust in American elections are really nothing new. You know, I actually found that you know there has been polling by the Washington Post that showed that mistrust in the election four years ago was actually 13 points higher than this one. It was higher after the Bush-Gore uh, election. It's really not a new thing. And we've always tended to see this in closely contested elections. The thing is, there was a point where it became clear that the basis of the Trump administration's challenges to these uh, rampant calculated fraud conducted on a massive scale really had no basis in fact, as far as dozens of failed lawsuits determined in court. The thing that really marked this as different for the South Carolina delegation in particular is how long they pushed this narrative. Uh, On November 20th, 
more than two weeks after the election, top Republicans like Denver Riggleman and Liz Cheney asked Trump to either prove his claims or drop the idea that the election had been stolen. But South Carolina's delegation have continued to push. They've held press conferences the following month declaring that they would object to the results certified by individual states' electors and ultimately did. You know, Now we're seeing in the retrospective with some of the material that's been put out by the January 6th commission that it's very likely that this was the intent of the Trump administration all along to contest the results that have been turned in by the individual states. Taking it a little bit further to the very beginning of, of January, the very beginning of 2021, when there's a rally being organized in, in Washington, the, quote, Stop the Steal rally. What were some of the South Carolina ties to the organization of that rally in D.C.? This is another interesting part, is that a lot of uh, South Carolinians' role in the organization of January 6th was largely administrative. And so, for instance, uh, you know, Caroline Wren, who's been connected to numerous figures in South Carolina politics, uh, you know, primarily as a fundraiser. You know, she helped facilitate donations between the heiress of the supermarket chain Publix, who's a very large conservative donor, to groups like the Republican Attorney General's Association, which is staffed by, uh, you know, former Alan Wilson aide Adam Piper. You know, these are groups that are pretty standard as far as DC politics go. They did what they always did, which is, you know, they you know find their constituency, they you know keep them motivated and um, you know they urge them to participate in the party's politics. I think the difference here is that there was an intent that was playing out in message boards um, that are now becoming even more clear that you know these people ultimately intended to overturn the results of the election. Uh, Leading up to that rally, how were South Carolinians organizing, getting together? Were there meeting spots? What was that like in that lead up to the actual day that people were planning on gathering in D.C.? A lot of the grassroots organization appears to have taken place online, on Facebook groups and conservative pages, on online message boards, you know, very few of uh, the people who have been criminally charged connected to January 6th, you know, we're talking about 700 people, very few of them were connected to the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or the Oath Keepers. We're talking about a few dozen people. The vast majority of these folks were what you might call inspired believers. You know, they're people who just really believed in, in this election fraud conspiracy you know, they were discussing ways to carpool or, you know, drive up there in buses. There was at least one bus that left from the low country that carried a couple of South Carolina's eventual defendants and another bus that left from the upstate. There was also a group that talked about meeting outside of a, a mall in Columbia to sort of drive up there in a caravan. So there was definitely some level of loose organization about just just getting up there and, and sort of why everyone was going in, in, in the build up to this from South Carolina. And we're here to declare to the whole world, give me liberty or give On January 5th, South Carolina's 4th Congressional District candidate, Mark Burns, who's a noted evangelical pastor in the Greenville area, was named as Trump's top pastor in the 2016 campaign after giving an enthusiastic speech at one of his rallies. He was there speaking on January 5th. Another figure that we've found that was uh, off of our radar for a while was uh, James Epley, who was a uh, member of the Trump transition team and also once upon a time ran for Trey Gowdy's seat up in SC4. 
has you know worked in various capacities for different candidates around the state. He was there in Washington with a 15-foot-tall replica of the U.S. Constitution, which he said was there mostly to defend the rule of law, was what he told us. And for the most part, he was um, someone who believed that the concerns of uh, people at their election was... Um, you know, irregular or might have been potentially fraudulent was uh, an issue that he uh, felt that their concerns were never sufficiently addressed. Do we have any idea, any estimate of maybe how many South Carolinians went to D.C.? I know we wouldn't know maybe necessarily at the Capitol, but went there on the the 5th and the 6th for this rally. I would conservatively guess dozens, probably likely 100 or more, maybe 200 just because you've got 10,000 people in this sort of mob that marched on the Capitol. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Yeah! Yeah! Let's take the Capitol. Seven hundred plus people have been charged from all across the country. There's active investigations, and in fifty-five of the FBI's fifty-six field offices who are still arresting two people a day. It's kind of down to a trickle now in terms of the incoming arrest, but the, the investigation is still very much ongoing. Uh, and in South Carolina, the feds have arrested eleven people, two of whom are charged with actual violence against police that day. Another of whom, William Norwood of Greer, actually bragged about fighting police and taking their gear, but then said that he was actually lying when he was bragging. So from what I can tell, he hasn't been formally charged with actually attacking police, which is what he said he did. How did the FBI identify these people? I guess maybe more broadly, but then also if we know any details about specifically these 11 people in South Carolina, how did they identify them and find them? It's become the largest criminal investigation in American history. And what we're seeing in these cases time and time again are sort of the same methods of tracking these people down. Tipsters reach out to the FBI after seeing you know, familiar faces on C-SPAN or on Twitter at being at the Capitol. In many cases with the South Carolina defendants, it was people that were close to them who didn't condone what these folks did at the Capitol that day, who contacted the FBI and turned them in. More than 237,000 tips uh, have come into the FBI so far in that investigation. And then, you know, another really important and I think interesting facet is that defendants are telling on themselves on social media. You know, about half of the 700 people who have been arrested, you know, the FBI looked through their social media and found evidence where they bragged about storming the Capitol. That tells you something interesting that these people were going in and taking selfies and filming each other. They really were so convicted in their beliefs and they'd really bought so fully into the election fraud conspiracy, which we now know is unfounded, definitively know that to be unfounded, that they didn't think it was a crime to attack the seat of U.S. democracy. It's sort of remarkable how much of the evidence that's been used in these cases were produced by the defendants themselves. What have you been able to learn from, like you said, covering these cases for months about what brought some of these people there that day? Like I said, I've, I've gone through about 1,500 pages of court records and you know covered all their hearings. And a lot of times, not, not much is said about these people, who they are, but there's typically a little bit in each hearing. And, and so I started sort of this like 70-page master file with all their dossiers and basically everything I can find out about them. And it's really fascinating to see some of the 
similarities and, and the differences between them. You know, there's there's not really one singular profile of a person who traveled to DC and then stormed the Capitol, but there are a number of things that are similar between most of them. All, all of South Carolina's defendants, for example, are white. All but one of them are men. Some of them are just graduated from high school. Some of them have wives and kids and full-time employment. All of them, from what from what I could tell, scouring their social media pages, some of which have been scrubbed by now, you know, all of them uh, seem to share the same political philosophies and ideologies. They were fans of the president, Donald Trump. They did not want to see Joe Biden take office. And there's also this distinction between several of them who went up there thinking we may end up sieging the Capitol and some who went up there just to, just to protest the election and wound up, you know, sort of joining the mob. Just There's definitely kind of different profiles among the same group of people. Right. If we take ourselves back to January 6th, it was such a shock for the general population that that's what happened. But we know now that there were people who were there that day that came with the expectation of that was something that could happen, storming the Capitol. When it comes to the defendants from South Carolina, do we know if any of them specifically knew and and, and went with that possibility in mind of storming the Capitol? And, And if so, how do we know that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely indications that at least one and possibly a few of them thought that storming the Capitol was a possibility. Uh, you've got George Tenney III, who is a 41-year-old man from Anderson, who in the weeks leading up to January 6th was messaging a friend on Facebook. In some of his messages on Facebook that the FBI got a hold of, he was saying, I think we might end up sieging the Capitol if things don't go right and saying, like, do you know anybody with the Proud Boys that I could link up with? You know, so there was obviously, uh, according to the, you know, the evidence that prosecutors have laid out, there was, there was some level of intention with that defendant. And then some others, if they weren't preparing to do violence, they were at least prepared for some sort of scuffle. You know, they showed up with tactical vests, you know, with gas masks. So they were prepared for some level of violence or for, or for things to get ugly. And then you just had a, a you know a couple like Nicholas Langeran from Little River and Derek Gundy from the Upstate, who on social media and in, in writings to themselves described themselves as sleeper agents. You know, there, there's certainly some some level of preponderance that the day could have become violent. We will be right back after this quick message. This is Tony Bartleney, investigative projects reporter for The Post and Courier. Few newspapers do the kind of investigative work that we do here at The Post and Courier. We spend months digging deep into issues, looking for patterns, hunting for things some people want to hide. We've done stories about greed and betrayal. We've exposed corruption at the Statehouse and beyond. Our goal, tell stories that help our readers make better sense of the world around them. Learn more at postandcourier.com backslash subscribe. Let's go back to that that period just after January 6th and, and what some folks were saying. Former Governor Nikki Haley, what was she saying at the time right after January 6th? 
Yeah, shortly after January 6th occurred, Dickie Haley did notably denounce the president, saying that we uh, you know, never should have followed him and that um, you know, he should not run in 2024, and uh, essentially praising his accomplishments, saying that, you know, while we should be proud of what we've accomplished over the last four years, there's no way that the party viably moves ahead. And this is something that has been talked about quite lengthily, actually. You know, this Politico profile that was done on her um, shortly after January 6th, uh, the author really does push her to answer the question or articulate what she means. And, you know, a reading of that, it's very clear that, you know, she sees uh, the Republican Party as needing to move beyond Trump. And this was something that a number of South Carolina politicians and others in the Republican Party had said shortly afterward. It was a popular opinion, too. You know, Lindsey Graham said it on the floor. You know, we've had a good run, but, you know, this is it. Maybe I, among any, above all others in this body, need to say this. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are lawfully elected and will become the president and the vice president of the United States on January the 20th. Really, condemnation of January 6th was uh, very much bipartisan. What changed, what really was, um, I, I think, the party writ large is people have started to see the um, case against Trump as a more of a uh, politically motivated thing, especially as impeachment started to roll around. We've seen that particularly with uh, people like Nikki Haley. You know, in 2020, the ambassador's favorability rating was exceptional, even among Democrats, and fueled speculation that she would be a leading candidate for president in 2024. We can even point to polling way further in the past to 2018 that shows her as one of the most uh, popular members of uh, Trump's cabinet by a wide margin. But following her interview with Politico, national media and pundits focused on her comments saying that she broke with the party. It appears that she has pivoted back to supporting him, you know, saying that she would uh, support him in a hypothetical 2024 run, meeting with him at Mar-a-Lago. You know, her tone has shifted markedly since last winter. I think the other marked thing is just her favorables compared to where she was at the apex of her political career. In April 2018, her favorables with Republicans was set 75%. Democrats 55, independents 63. However, a recent uh, economist YouGov poll from after January 6th, 24% favorable with Democrats, 53% with Republicans, and her independent favorable rating is at 31%, so less than half of what it used to be. And within South Carolina's congressional delegation, one of the big stories of the the fallout from, from January 6th is the responses from Two people specifically, let's start with Nancy Mace, the freshman member of, of Congress. It was her first week in Washington that January 6th happened, and she actually came on this podcast in January 2021, and she spoke about that experience and really denounced the events of that day. Let's talk a little bit about what uh, she's seen politically well, the political reality Nancy Mace lives in is vastly different from, I think, a majority of members of South Carolina's delegation and, uh, you know, vastly different from a lot of Republicans. Um, you know, she's in one of those rare battleground districts. It was one of the closest races in the country, not only in 2020, but 2018 as well. Two point margins both times. She's found herself trying to straddle the lines of, you know, voting for some things related to January 6th and voting against others. Uh, you know, notably, she was a split vote on holding, you know, former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in contempt alongside figures like Steve Bannon, who was you know, one of the main people fanning the flames ahead of January 6th. She's facing a pretty uh, tough 
political battle right now. Um, you know, Trump himself has encouraged people to primary her in the upcoming elections. Um, she already has two opponents on her right flank who have lined up to do so, including uh, Army veteran Ingrid Centurion and uh, activist Lindsey Piper Loomis, who was uh, actually spotted among the crowd at a recent anti-vax rally at the South Carolina State Capitol. Uh, she also faces a credible challenge in uh, Democrat Annie Andrews, who on Monday announced that she had raised uh, more than half a million dollars. The political calculus for her right now is uh, you know, pretty different difficult with challenges coming from both sides. Yeah, and kind of speaking off walking that line in January 2021, she voted in favor of upholding the election results going against her Republican colleagues in the House. But then when it came to impeachment, she voted to not impeach President Trump. But one of her Republican colleagues did. And that we've also discussed on this show before was was a move that definitely surprised a lot of people. That was Tom Rice uh, voted for impeachment. What's the fallout that he's seen in the last year? He hasn't shied away from you know how he's felt about that day. You know, he's um, said in press interviews that he's regretted his vote to not certify the results from some of those contested states, and that frankly, what happened that day was wrong. I followed him around on the campaign trail on the day that he reannounced his. Uh, re-election bid. And he stopped at a factory and was talking to some of the employees. And, um, you know, people were asking the question, asking him questions. It never came up. They were mostly talking about bread and butter issues. And at the end, um, he didn't let himself off easy. He just let everyone know that, oh, yeah, also, I voted to impeach the president. Here's why. It's something that he's not hiding from. He faces a number of uh, challengers who could have some varying legitimacy against him. Uh, Russell Fry, uh, who's pretty high in the Republican ranks in the state legislature, is one of them. Graham Allen has uh, you know, said himself that his campaign is facing some financial issues, but he has the backing of figures like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, uh, Lauren Boebert. He's also running against him. And uh, that race is shaping up to be a barn burner you know, come this summer. Among the 11 South Carolinians who have been charged, have any of them pleaded guilty? So far, five South Carolinians have pleaded guilty in connection with January 6th, and a sixth plans to do so on January 10th. And have any of these people been sentenced so far? Do we know what these people are potentially facing for their charges? So far, just one has been sentenced. That was Andrew Hatley. He's a trucker from Newberry, South Carolina. He got three years of probation with no prison time. A few more will be sentenced in the next few months. The sentencing process in federal court takes a little bit longer, usually two to three months after you plead guilty. But what we're seeing in South Carolina and across the country is that a lot of these sort of low-level offenders who didn't punch a police officer, didn't vandalize the Capitol, but they they did storm the Capitol and they added to the, the mob strength and numbers. They're getting off with community service or house arrest for a few months. You know, none of the above and, and, and just getting probation. Typically, if they don't have, you know, a prior record, which many of these people didn't, you know, that's the kind of sentence they're getting. And and also uh, they get points for pleading guilty. So we're at the phase now where we're seeing the DOJ accept guilty pleas for misdemeanors and a lot of these minor charges. And then I think you'll see for the, the people who have been convicted of more serious charges like 
you know, assaulting police, people who are affiliated with the Proud Boys or other right-wing militia groups, you know, those people may end up going to trial and they're going to end up, you know, the, the DOJ is trying to save some of their energy so that they can, you know, really bring the hammer down on those folks. So far, one South Carolinian who was accused of attacking police has pleaded guilty. That's Nicholas Langerand of of Little River. He was throwing objects at police officers as they guarded the Capitol. And the sentencing guidelines recommended that he spend 46 to 57 months behind bars. And he's already been detained since April. You know, prosecutors and judges are talking about how we have to, as a nation of law and order, we have to provide a deterrent for future political acts of violence like this. So what does it say when some of these people who are involved in this get, you know, probation? But, but on the other hand, you know, you have to recognize that these people are pleading down to misdemeanors. And in many other misdemeanor cases uh, that don't involve sacking the U.S. Capitol, those are the penalties. So it's been sort of fascinating to see judges and prosecutors really grapple with this because it's clear that they want some sort of a strong deterrent. You know, they also have to try to get these cases through the court system because there's 700 of them. And they, they also have to, you know, stay within the guidelines of what the law allows in terms of punishing people. So that, that's been fascinating to watch. Have any of the people who have been charged, maybe in particular people who have already pleaded guilty, said anything publicly in, in court, on, on social media about how they feel a- after the fact, how they feel maybe after after being charged, after facing this case about their involvement that day? That's a great question. I was really fascinated with that question. And, you know, I reached out to all of the defendants, uh, their lawyers, trying to get an interview. I, you know, I messaged with one of them back and forth for a little bit. I talked to one of them this summer as well. And, and she said, you know, we have regrets. Basically, all of them who have spoken out loud at their hearings, not all of them have, but they've they've said that they, they regret what happened that day. They regret going inside. Some of them have said that they think that January 6th was a bad day for the country. Some of them said that they d- didn't like seeing what happened at the Capitol. And, and that's why they turned around and left the building once they got inside and, you know, saw, you know, violence and saw vandalism and, and sort of realized what was happening in this like sacrosanct part of, of America. But there really hasn't been much recanting of what led them there. I've heard none of them stand up and say, uh, Your Honor, I was I was duped. I was misled to believe that our nation's election was rigged. None of them have said that. But we have heard some judges, you know, sort of wax poetic about the big lie of election fraud and the need to show people that they, sh- they shouldn't follow false prophets. And, you know, I'm almost quoting directly from from Judge Thomas Hogan when he was sentencing Andrew Hatley. So we've seen remorse, but we haven't really seen recanting of the political beliefs. All right, that's all for today. For more, check out today's show notes, where you'll find links to more of Avery and Nick's coverage. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for this podcast, Email us at understandsc at postingcourier.com or DM us on Twitter at understandsc. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our intro music is by Billy Fountain. Let us know what you think of the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Keep up with the latest headlines at postingcourier.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week.